turn to, in your Bibles to Revelation 19 as you do, um, I just want to say thank you. You guys knocked it out of the park two weeks ago when you hosted the rest stop out at the Hoxie's house. And I, I talked to people all the rest of the week riding with these cyclists just about that house. People would come up and, I mean, it was just, you did a wonderful job of serving, um, loving um, I had some gospel conversations as a result of that. Um, I, one guy that I met a few years ago, uh, and John, if you're watching or if you watch this later, I love you, brother. I'm just telling you this. Um, first time I met this guy, I didn't, I'm not sure I liked him at all. I'm pretty sure I didn't. He, he was pretty loud, and he probably would say the same thing about me. But over the years, we've developed this relationship. And um, so he told me that night, last Tuesday night, uh, he said, man, and he had tears running down his face as he said it. He said, that was like church. And he was, um, he was talking about just sitting in front of the porch um, as Ben and Emily and some others were just playing music and stuff. Anyway. It was pretty cool. And we did have some, some good conversations about that later on. Um, so thank you for doing that. That said, you have another opportunity to step up and knock it out of the park this next Sunday, okay? That's all it is. It's just loving people, showing them some hospitality, having conversations with them. Um, and, and we open our house Sunday night to show hospitality to whoever will come. You'll probably never see any of those cyclists again. Um, but you will have a chance to build some relationships with the folks that will be here on Sunday night. So let me just encourage you to come and be a part of that, okay? So Jason read, and you have studied Psalm 96 this morning. No, the sermon is not on Psalm 96. Um, but what a beautiful picture of worship it is there in that passage of Scripture. Um, I, was, I didn't realize that was going to be part of the Sunday school lesson this week as I, as I was preparing but this, this singing to the Lord a new song, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Uh, the families of the peoples and even those who are not a part of the family of God, if you will, are witnessing this and watching this as this worship picture unfolds in Psalm 96. As you come together here on Sunday morning church, do you realize that you are testifying? You are testifying to Jesus. You are testifying to each other and to the world that he means more to you than the things of this world. That's by taking this time away out of your schedule and gathering for worship. Not only are you being obedient to the word, but you are testifying to the world that Christ is a priority for me. And that's what Psalm 96 communicates. And that's what leaps off the pages in Revelation chapter 19. Now, one word, I think, summarizes our passage today. I was counting with Susan the number of times that, that I've been blessed to travel around this world um, to different countries on missions and ministry trips. And I think the count I got was somewhere around 16 different countries where I've been. And in every single one of those countries, all of whom had different languages, they say hallelujah in a language, whatever it is, in a way that you can understand it. Because hallelujah is pronounced the same, certainly with dialectical differences. Certainly it's going to be different maybe from the tongue of Mandarin than it is going to be coming from the tongue of a Spanish speaker. But you can pick it out. So it doesn't matter where I've traveled, where we've worshipped, who we've been with. When the Lord is praised with the word hallelujah, you can understand it. You, you know what's being said and, and what's being done. And we find that word four times in our passage today. And it's the only place you find it in the New Testament. It's the only place you'll find this word. It's four times here in Revelation chapter 19. And hallelujah is literally a, just a transliteration of a Hebrew word that has two words to it. Hallel, which is to praise or to extol or to give glory to in some way. And, and Yah which is a shortened version of Jehovah or Yahweh. So, Hallel Yah, Hallelujah. 
that's that's worthy. So you had a Hebrew lesson this morning, okay? You didn't even know that. So, um, and that's all we'll do with any foreign language today. And so, hallelujah, amen. Thank you. I'm I'm wanting more of those today. And and as I was studying for it this week, I I ran across one commentator, more than one, who pointed out that this is called a plural imperative. So maybe one little extra thing on the Hebrew lesson. Um, but the writer phrased it this way. A, a, a plural imperative means it's not just y'all worship, you know, y'all praise the Lord. It's all y'all. That's how we would say it in the South. All you all, okay, praise the Lord. So it's a, it's a, it's a double meaning there. So, all right, that's the end of the lesson, all right? Now, before we read Revelation chapter 19, I want to take just a second to kind of catch us up. And it's important because if we don't, Revelation 19 will not be understood properly in its context. And in fact, part of it will just just seem kind of inappropriate, if you will. Part of Revelation 19 would make no sense without reading and understanding a little bit about what comes before. Now, remember, in Revelation chapter 1, we had this picture of Jesus walking among the seven lampstands. Seven is that perfect number that we have found over and over and over in the book of Revelation. And we see Jesus revealing himself. The revelation of Jesus Christ is what it says in chapter 1. And Jesus is walking among these seven lampstands, which represents seven literal churches that we see in the, in the next two chapters. But it also represents our church and every church in the church age. And Jesus is among us today. He's walking in our midst today. So it represents that, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And there's this promise of blessing to those who read aloud the words of this. So just imagine when this letter was first read, I believe it was read in total verbally to those who were there. So they just read through John's letter from the revelation. And there was blessing in that. There was a promise of blessing in that. In Revelation 2 and 3, then we have these letters to seven churches. And we saw that. And seven times in those letters... We are, we are told that there is blessing and in some cases warning to those who fail to overcome. We are called to overcome. And seven times, let him hear. Let's hear. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Hear what the Spirit is saying to us. We heard that seven times in chapters 2 and 3. In chapter 4, the throne room of heaven is opened up. John is, is literally taken up spiritually into heaven. And he sees the throne room of God, the center of the universe with this. We saw these concentric circles of praise coming out of Revelation chapter 4. And God is worshipped as being worthy to receive glory and honor and power. Because it says in verse 11, you created all things and by your will they were created and they exist. In Revelation chapter 5, there's another song. Actually, in Revelation 4 and 5, there are five songs. And all of them repeat basically the same thing, all right? A lot of our contemporary Christian music, I think, is very shallow, and it just repeats the same phrase. The song we just sung is absolutely rock-solid biblically. It repeated a phrase, but that's the phrase we see repeated over and over and over in the book of Revelation. And so in, in, in Revelation 4 and 5, we have this song repeated. And then in Revelation 5, there's this conundrum in heaven. If there's ever a problem in heaven, we see one here in Revelation chapter 5. No one is worthy to take the scroll and open it. And John weeps because of that. And John is told to weep no more because he says, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has triumphed. And John turns and he sees this lamb standing as though it had been slain. It's called the lion of the tribe of Judah. John turns and sees a lamb. And that lamb is worshipped. From then on, Hallelujah. He's worshipped from then on. The song that's repeated there in chapter 5 is worthy as the lamb who was slain to receive honor and glory and power and honor and blessing. It's just over and over and over it's, it's, it's phrased that way. So in Revelation 6, six seals are opened by the lamb. And we see these judgments beginning. The six seals lead to seven trumpets, lead to uh, the seven, the seven seals lead to seven trumpets, lead to seven bowls of wrath. That's how it kind of flows in the book of Revelation. And as these, as these events are unfolding on the earth, it, it, it does bring an end to the earth as we understand it. Total devastation 
It's so bad in the end of chapter 6 that the kings of the earth, I'm reading in verse 15, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, every slave, every free man, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains, and they called on the mountains and the rocks to fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Does that sound strange? The wrath of a Lamb? Great is the day of their wrath, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand is the question at the end of chapter 6. In Revelation 7, that question is answered. And those who can stand are those that are sealed. And I hold the position that that picture that we see of that 144,000 is this total picture of all the redeemed that are sealed by the blood of the Lamb. And they stand before the throne, and it says there, there was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. And notice it says they're wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands. And they crowd out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So Revelation 7 answers the question, who can stand? In Revelation 8 and 9, the seventh seal is opened, which leads to seven trumpets, and these plagues begin to come forth that we see in these pages of Scripture. Plagues on the trees, on the oceans, on the fresh water, on the sky. In the next chapter, these demons come up out of the abyss, and they're stinging people and making them suffer, and they want to die, but they can't. And this plague of death comes from these 200 million warriors, if you will, just literally killing billions of people on the earth. And, and then the question kind of came to my mind. I went back through my notes. And this answer comes in Revelation chapter 9. What will it take? What does it take for people to repent and to turn? Revelation 9 verse 20 says, The rest of mankind who were not killed by the plagues, did not repent of their works, of their hands, nor, nor did they give up worshiping demons or idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see, hear, or talk. Nor did they repent of their murderers or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Chapters 9, 8, and 9 of Revelation are intense. It's just one blow after another. So we, I remember saying, we need a break. And you kind of get a break in Revelation chapter 10. And you see this glory of God reflected in this mighty angel who spans the earth and the sea. And he holds this, this little scroll in his hand. And he commands John, just like Ezekiel was in the Old Testament, to eat that scroll. And our application from that was this scroll, as the angel tells John, will be both bitter and sweet. It will taste good in your mouth, but it will make your stomach sore, sick. And this bittersweet message, which we understood then, is just the assimilation of God's Word. We're to consume it. And it is a bittersweet message that we share. Jesus comes to save, but He also will come to judge. And that's the message that we have in Revelation chapter 10. And it's a message we're called to take to peoples and nations and languages and tongues. That's the commission that we're given. In Revelation 11... We saw this temple of God with people on the inside and those on the outside seemingly attacking. There's this contrast between those two. And there is this, there is this, these two faithful witnesses who stand up against the beast and proclaim. And then they're killed. And then they're raised. And we see this picture of God just being faithful throughout that. And in chapter 11, these woes are pronounced by this bird flying overhand. And this second woe has passed, and this third woe is to come, it says in verse 14. And this third woe is the seventh trumpet blast, which then leads to further judgment, okay? So this judgment is being poured out. But one of the things that just caught my eye again as I was reading back through Revelation this week is what it says in Revelation 11:15: The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. We need to remember that, because in Revelation 12, it seems like all hell starts to break loose. In Revelation chapter 12, this giant dragon called the serpent, the devil, has come to lead the whole world astray. And he is powerful. And he is powerfully deceiving. 
But the vision that we have there, the image that we have there is there is he's absolutely under control. And in the end, he's just a big loser. That's just my phrase for it. I mean, because what he attempts to do over and over, he fails to do. He stands ready to devour the male child, but he can't. Then he tries to destroy the woman, but he can't. Then he tries to take over heaven, but he can't. And then he's cast down to the earth. And he tries to crush the church and the offspring of that woman, who I see as those who are redeemed. But he can't. And so he's failing in that. And there's this this constant strategy, though, of Satan, while he is loosed here on the earth, of persecution and everything that we see taking place. And that's why it's so important that we understand this context. In Revelation chapter 13, this beast from the sea, the Antichrist, and this other beast, this false prophet, arise. And all of the people of the earth who are not sealed before the foundation of the world receive the mark of the beast. And they can't, and without it, they can't buy, they can't sell. This mark of the beast is just this distinguishing characteristic. And I remember saying then, and just, I think it's important for us to remember that, you know, good Lord, we just get all caught up in what the mark of the beast is. I mean, it just gets nuts. It is, it is those who follow Satan bearing his characteristics. Just as those who follow Christ and are sealed by his blood are called to bear his characteristics. That's, that's, that's that picture that I think we see there. In Revelation chapter 14, God just continues to issue warnings and pleas through these, through these evangelists. And, and they're faithful to the Lamb. They're faithful to, to stand for Christ. In Revelation chapter 15, there's this song of deliverance. Remember, we went back to the book of Exodus and the song that Moses sang when the, God rescued them through the Red Sea. And there's this song of deliverance in chapter 15. In chapter 16, these seven bowls of judgment are poured out. These, these last plagues, if you will, that come from heaven. In that sixth bowl, there was this huge demonic army. Or it's an army that comes across the dried up Euphrates that Satan has seemingly put together. I don't think these guys know what it is they're in for, but they're going to this place called Armageddon. And Jesus will defeat them, and he will defeat them easily. And as this final battle is set up, we come to Revelation chapter 17, where we're introduced to Babylon the Great, to this harlot, this prostitute. And she is representative of a world system. A world system of commerce, a world system of materialism and prosperity. She's this great city that seems to rule the earth. And and Jason did a beautiful job of leading you through Revelation chapter 18 a few weeks ago and showing you these characteristics of those who who have been enticed by her, have bought into her system, and the grief and the heartache that they seem to have over her demise. And in Revelation chapter 18, it says in verse 2, And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean detestable beast. All the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. And God's judgment is being poured out in and on his creation through these scrolls, through these trumpets, through these bowls. And there's still no repentance. There's still no sorrow. The sorrow we do see in Revelation 18 is because their means of wealth have been dried up. All right? The sugar daddy's gone. The one who was... Providing everything that they wanted and everything that they felt like they needed. They've been seduced by the harlot. And she is perishing and they will perish with her. And that is why we're commanded. That is why the emphasis in in Revelation 18 seems to fall in verses 4 and 5. Come out of her, my people. Come out of her so that you will not share in her sins. So that you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to the heavens. And God has remembered her crimes. The Lord is calling his people to come out. To be aware of the dangers. And at the end of chapter 18. This mighty angel takes up a stone like a great millstone. And throws it into the sea. And it's a depiction. It's a picture of the destruction of the world system. 
of Babylon the Great. And that brings us to Revelation chapter 19. And it's important for us to understand, see, the response. Jason put it this way. He and I were kind of going back and forth before his sermon. And and one of the things that he wrote to me, he said, in the response of lost humanity to the destruction of Babylon, we see the tragic picture of misaimed affections, misplaced hope. We see that any and every promise made by this system is empty. It's cloaked in deception. And it is doomed. And that's, that's what this world offers us. With all its twinkles, all its trinkets, all its bells, all its, all its beauty. And that brings us to Revelation 19. Turn in your pew Bible to page 1039. I want us to read it together. Actually, what I want you to do with me is, is read the, 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 the chorus parts of it. All right. Now, this hallelujah is not whispered. Do you understand that, don't you? All right. Some of you would call it irreverent. Probably. Now, I mean, it's 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 roaring. It is, you know, whatever color you wear on Saturday. And everybody stands up and cheers at the same time. This this 12th man deafening sound. That's that's what this is. That's what we're hearing here. The sound of a great multitude, it says, like the roar of many waters and the sound of mighty peals of thunder. I've never been to Niagara Falls, but it makes it sound like a whisper. So let's read it. I'll start in verse one. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out. All right, church. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. I'll read once more. They cried out. Church. Hallelujah. There you go. The smoke of her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen. Hallelujah. And from the throne, a voice came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. That's just one voice, but you can read it with me if you want to. All right. That's okay. That's okay. I think it's Jesus. A lot of commentators disagree with me. He's okay with us reading along there. All right. Verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, church, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you. With you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Amen. Good job. Good job. Let's pray together. Lord, we do pray that you will open our eyes to see your glory. Help us in this passage, even as we prepare for communion, to taste and see that you are good. And what you have um, in, in store for us is, is beyond anything that we can imagine. But Lord, help us with eyes of faith, with appetites of faith. Long for that. And we pray that in Christ's name. Amen. So let's let's work our way through this and just uh, take a look at this this morning. And you did a great job reading church. That was that's OK. All right. Now, what we read here in this in these hallelujahs are coming from two perspectives. All right. And I kind of thought about this this week as like two mountaintops. One is the mountaintop of God's holy judgment. And and we're declaring hallelujah for what we see God doing in his judgment. And then when we come to the marriage supper, when we come to this 
amazing passage about the marriage, we're looking at it from the perspective of God's redeeming love. On one hand, we're praising him for his judgment. On the other hand, we're praising him for his redeeming love, for, for, for inviting us, in fact, and allowing us to be a part of the wedding. So the first hallelujah. And, by, and remember, the hallelujah, I put in your sermon notes, praise the Lord. That's how it's translated in many of the Psalms, the Hallel Psalms in the Old Testament. But, but it is that one word, Hallel, Yah, praise the Lord. And so that's, that's, how it's, that's how it's translated. And so that's why I put it that way in the sermon notes. Praise the Lord, hallelujah. Salvation, glory, and power belong to him. And so we see this great multitude praising God for his, for his salvation, for his glory, for his power. Actually, there's six things listed here, all right? Six things that are points of praise. One is his salvation, his salvation. The psalmist in Psalm 51 says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. That prayer will be answered in heaven. All right. It'll be answered in heaven. There is this clear understanding that these folks, they get it and we should get it. They sing the song because they know they've been saved from Babylon. They've been saved from that fate. They've been saved, like Paul says in Romans 3, they recognize that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I was one of them. And so were you if you were in Christ. But we've been saved. His glory. This is what Paul prayed in Ephesians 3.21. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all the generations forever and ever. This is what we see. This is the fulfillment of Philippians 2. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the fulfillment we see in Revelation chapter 19. His glory. They're praising him for his glory. They're praising him for his power. Remember in 2 Thessalonians, that's a mouthful. Jesus defeats the man of lawlessness. What weapon does he use? The breath of his mouth. He's gone. That's power. That's power. And he is praised for his power. His just and true judgments. He's praised for who he is. That's, that's who God is. He is true and he is just. And his character is demonstrated in this day of judgment. And he's praised for that. And it'll be crystal clear for heaven and for earth to see. And his judgment is poured out specifically. Look at verse. Look at what it says. On the great prostitute on Babylon. And guess what? We saw this earlier. She deserves it. It's hard for our modern minds to grasp the reality of this. In Revelation 16, it says, They have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. The ones Babylon cannot entice and trip up, Babylon will persecute, Babylon will incarcerate, Babylon will kill, Babylon will take their possessions they will take our children they will babylon seeks to kill and destroy that's what satan seeks to do and the judgment of god on babylon is just it is true and it is in one sense vengeance it says that he is avenging the blood of his servants remember back in revelation chapter 6 when the fifth seal was broken there was a cry from the altar in heaven a cry from the martyrs, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Well, in Revelation 19, those saints are singing a different song because that vengeance, that, that avenging power of God has been carried out. That's the first hallelujah. The second one comes in verse 3. Once more they cried out, hallelujah, the smoke of her goes up forever and ever. We've already talked a little bit about the eternal wrath of God upon those who reject Christ. And we will talk about it more in the following passage. God is not vindictive. He is not capricious. And, and we struggle, I believe, sometimes understanding this. David Platt said, and I appreciate this, if God turned a deaf ear to sin and evil injustice and injustice and suffering in the world, he would not be true. And he would certainly not be just. God here, talking about this verse, is rightfully and wholeheartedly praised for his justice. One commentator said it this way. 
Our hesitation to celebrate this final vision, talking about specifically verse 3, celebrating and praising God because the smoke of his vengeance goes up forever and ever. This commentator said, our hesitation to celebrate this final vision shows how much we underestimate the damage of the wickedness of Babylon the Great to us and to our brothers and sisters. These heavenly worshipers are not smug. They know they were redeemed by grace through faith. In heaven, he says, we will be sober-minded and we will see clearly and realize that God is just in what he does. Let me give you something just to consider, really just a point of application about this part of the passage, okay? There is a day coming when we will rejoice over the destruction of God's enemies. It is not here yet. It is not here yet. And when we see that destruction on that great day, we will worship and praise God for it. But today, our response until that day comes, our response is to be what Jesus taught us. That we are to love our enemy. And we are to pray for those who persecute us. And we are to serve them as he came to serve. And it is a God-sized task accomplished only through the power of the Holy Spirit working in those that he has redeemed. The day of destruction will come, but it is not here yet. So now is the day of prayer. Now is the day that we love. Now is the day that we serve. Now is the day, just as Christ taught us, that we recognize that in a mysterious way, God is using our time in Babylon to grow us more into the likeness of Christ. That day is coming, but it's not here yet. The third hallelujah, look at verse 4. Now all of heaven says hallelujah, amen. All of heaven joins in. There's no hesitation, there's no uncertainty, and there's no one left out. Sometimes Jason or JT, I'm, I'm sure, stands up here and we're singing, and he'll look out and he'll see some of you just standing there. We're sitting, mouth's not moving. That will not happen in heaven, okay? That will not happen, all right? Now, you may be making a joyful, awful noise, but, all right? I'm not sure redeemed by the blood of the Lamb means all of a sudden we'll sing a beautiful bass line. It might. I just don't know that part of it. But what we see here is that all of heaven joins in. There's no one left out. The 24 elders, the four living creatures, fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne. They cried out, Amen, Hallelujah. So all the elders, everybody we saw worshipping in chapter 4 and 5 is worshipping in Revelation chapter 19. And there's this command that comes in verse 5. From the throne comes this voice saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, small and great. There seems to be a a fairly strong majority, I won't say a consensus, of of folks who say this is this is not God or Christ speaking from the throne. David Garland was one of my seminary professors at Southwestern. In his commentary, he says um, the voice probably is neither that of God nor Christ because of the words our Lord God Almighty reigns. Um, But I don't know. I there are some and I kind of. Look at this, and I think back to John chapter 17, where Jesus told Mary at the tomb to go to his disciples. And he said, go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. And if and if they and if Jesus is is quoting those Psalms, those Hallel Psalms, those Psalms of praise where the people of God are called by the word of God to come and praise God like it does in Psalm 113 and 115. Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small in Psalm 115. You know, we say that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Well, listen, in front of the throne of the lamb, the ground is level. There is no socioeconomic distinction at all. All right. Small and great. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. And, and I just personally think that this is Jesus calling us to come and worship. But no big deal either way. It is a voice from heaven saying, come and worship. You know, the, the King James Version says, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. And I listened to the 
Hallelujah Chorus again this morning, early. I mean, I was up early this morning. I listened to it two or three times. And I just, every time that I, that I hear that thing, it, it is a worship experience for me, okay? And part of the simplicity, part of, the, part of what makes that song so amazing to me is the simplicity of it, okay? And you may not know a lot about music, but, but the way the song is, is broken down, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, there is a syllable on every note, Okay, one note per syllable. And it just keeps ramping up higher and higher and higher. You think, how much higher can it get? King of kings and Lord of lords. And the text for Messiah's Hallelujah Chorus, for Handel's Hallelujah Chorus, is, is Revelation 19. And, and the simplicity of it is what makes it so sublime. What just, that's, that's, it needs to be ingrained into our hearts, okay? Just King of kings and Lord of lords. Hallelujah. The Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let me give you another point of application just on this part of it. All right. Why, why do we praise? What, why, do we, why do we pray? Why do we praise? You ever thought about it? Here's my point. Lots of times our praise of God is focused on what he does for us. Right? I mean, we've sung some songs this morning about that. And lots of times our prayers and our praise are focused on what God does for us. Here in Revelation chapter 19, the praise of the saints is centered on who God is, on his character. Yes, what he does for us flows from that. But what we praise and thank him for is not first what he does for us but for who he is. And that's the focus I see here in this passage of Scripture. And what he has done for us is coming from his goodness. Our God is good and all he does is good, the psalmist tells us. And his judgments are righteous and true because he is righteous and true. And as we see this coming out, as he judges the harlot and the fact that he reigns over all, that's, that's important for us to recognize that. We praise him for who he is. And then we're also making a statement as we do that. John Piper wrote this. He actually said it in a sermon. And I posted this earlier this week. Corporate worship is the declaration in the midst of Babylon that we will not be drawn into her harlotries because we have found in God the satisfaction of our souls. Corporate worship is the public savoring of the worth of God and the beauty of God and the power of God and the wisdom of God. And therefore, worship is an open declaration to the powers of heaven and to all of Babylon that we will not prostitute our minds or our hearts or our bodies to the allurements of this world. And though we live in Babylon, we will not be captive to Babylonian ways. And we will celebrate with all of our might the awesome truth that we are free from that which will be destroyed. That's what our worship is. And that's what Revelation 19 shows us. Look at verses 6 through 8. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. His reign is complete and the marriage of the Lamb has come. I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Here is the answer to, to Matthew 6.10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Here's the answer to that prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. And what has been veiled, what has been hidden, what has been working like yeast, through the dough, now is exploding into the reality for all of the universe. Our God reigns, all right? Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. This sound is deafening. It's like a mighty waterfall. And when this fourth hallelujah comes... They, it's as loud as it could be because God is reigning. God is ruling. And nine times in Revelation, that phrase is used, the Lord our God, the Almighty. And every time it's a picture of this omnipotent, all-powerful God initiating his rule and reign over the universe. And, and this is the reality. As it is in heaven, now it is on earth. 
And remember, all these other hallelujahs up until this point have looked back to judgment. This one looks forward. It looks forward. This past Thursday, I was out on the beach there in North Topsail. Happened to look over about 50 yards down the beach, and I saw this guy coming out, and he was carrying this big stack of chairs, and he started setting up these rows of chairs. And then someone else came a little later, this lady, and she set up this little arbor thing right there on the beach. So I know what's about to happen here. And then this crowd showed up. Most of them were wearing shorts and T-shirt. It was the rehearsal, okay? I've done one beach wedding, all right? And you need to practice those things because it's just, it's just awkward. So Friday rolls around. We're out there. People are fishing. Kids are playing. You know, people are walking up and down the beach. And the wedding starts taking place. All right, people slowly start showing up. Some wearing shorts and T-shirts. One guy showed up in a blue three-piece suit. I said, "Dude, you are out of place." All right, all right, you're out here on the beach. Now I'm also thinking you need to hurry. High tide is coming. All right, and high tide was coming right up to the steps of the house. So you guys need to get this done. Okay, so this beach is this 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 wedding is going on, and and there might have been thirty, forty people there, and the vast majority have no idea that it's happening. People are just walking by, you know. There's a guy casting right out there in front of them, you know. He's fishing. This wedding is going on, and most people are just oblivious to it, all right? One one guy comes walking down the beach. <laughs> this is funny. He's wearing shorts and a shirt, and he's got, his, he's got this cloth over his head, and he's got this long beard. He looked exactly like Jesus from The Chosen. He did. He looked exactly like Jesus from The Chosen. And I'm thinking, you need to invite that guy. You need Jesus at your wedding, all right? And then I told Susan, well, if it really is Jesus, he's just going to interrupt it because that's what he did to every wedding he ever went to. Funerals, too. He just busted in and interrupted them. But they didn't invite him. You know, he just walked past the wedding. They turned around and just walked past, you know. Everybody missed it. Nobody will miss this one. <laughs> Nobody. All right? And, and, and this whole vision, this whole image of, of what a wedding it is, there's this stark contrast between this harlot and how she's dressed and what happens to her and this radiant bride and how she is dressed and how she is making herself ready. And this great joy is contrasted in Revelation 19 to the sorrow that we saw in Revelation chapter 18. And, and I don't have time to develop it. This scriptural metaphor that is just throughout, throughout the Bible about marriage, God took Israel as his betrothed in the Old Testament. Jeremiah talks about that. And Israel was unfaithful. Hosea talks about that. And God sought them out and, and tried to allure them back. And, and I was just thinking about this. When we think about biblical marriage, and I know it's not popular today, biblical marriage deepens our understanding of God's covenant love for us. And when we meditate on God's covenant love for us, it deepens our understanding of marriage. And it's just a beautiful picture there. Israel was unfaithful. And God called them back. And Jesus is this picture of this model bridegroom who has come for his bride. John the Baptist, I thought, Jesus, I thought JT, you might reference this, from John 3.29, where John the Baptist said, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. And the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John the Baptist got it. Jesus is that bridegroom. And the church is his bride. James Hamilton put it this way. Listen to this quote. Never has there been a more worthy bridegroom. Never has a man sacrificed more for his beloved. Never has a man gone to greater lengths and humbled himself more, endured more, and accomplished more in the great task of winning his bride. Never has a father more wealthy planned a bigger feast. Never has a more noble son honored his father in everything. Never has a man treated his bride to be more appropriately. And never has a more powerful pledge, like an engagement ring, been given than the pledge of the Holy Spirit. Never has a more glorious residence been prepared as the dwelling place once the bridegroom finally takes his bride. Never has a bridegroom done more to qualify his beloved to be his bride 
And never has a bride needed her bridegroom more. Never has there been a wedding more significant than this one. Never has a bridegroom loved his bride more. And never has a bride waited as long for her bridegroom. And never has a bride sung more songs to her beloved. And never has there been a wedding with more guests than this one will have. And never has a wedding taken place on a more momentous occasion. The end of the overlapping ages and ushering in of the kingdom. Never has there been a marriage like this one. In no place else in Revelation do we see a bride preparing herself. What is that? It says it was granted to her. All right. The marriage has come. The lamb has come. The marriage of the lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Here's what I think that means. That our righteousness is a gift. And our righteousness is our calling. Our righteousness is what we receive in Christ. And our righteousness is what we are to work out with fear and trembling. In obedience to him. So how do we do that? This is the only place in Revelation where we see the saints are described as making themselves ready. How do we do that? Well, we do it like we've seen throughout the book of Revelation. We do it by remaining faithful to Christ, by overcoming. We do it faithful. We do it by, by, by enduring hardship and suffering as we are called to. We do it by trusting God in the face of persecution and even death. We do it by loving Him more than we love our own lives. We, we prepare ourselves by obeying his gospel and taking it to every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And, and it's, our, it's our gift and it's our responsibility. And it's our defense too, okay? Preparing ourselves means not only are we working at righteousness, but as we work at righteousness, we are being more effective in fighting sin. One writer put it this way. It says that this idea of preparing ourselves takes all the energy out of evil. You want to do that? You want to defang the serpent? His head's already crushed. We know that. But as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the work of the Word, through the body of Christ, this writer said, our greed turns to generosity because the bridegroom has met our deepest need. Lust, lust gives way to contented joy. Because the bridegroom offers the greatest pleasures. Sloth and laziness turn to zeal. Anger and vindictiveness become patient longing for the bridegroom to enact his judgment. Envy is replaced with satisfied happiness. Gluttony turns to disciplined moderation. Pride vanishes because the only thing we have to boast in is the bridegroom and Jesus himself. So here's my point of application on this last thing. Are you are we getting ready? Are we getting ready? This is this is how Philippians two verses twelve and thirteen is 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 done. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, even so now work in my presence, Paul says, and much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's what Revelation that's what nineteen says. He has gifted us with his righteousness. And we prepare ourselves by living that out in obedience. That's that's the picture. We will we will see the rest of this unfolding. Uh, Let me just take a second to to touch on this last point, because this is something that's important. The angel makes this declaration, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. These are the true words of God, okay? This is this promise, this affirmation to John that, that this is God's word. It's his affirmation to us that we can trust it. And then John falls down and worships this angel. That's one of the things I love about the Bible is it doesn't gloss over the ugliness of sin. And John sins here. This is idolatry. All right? He's mistaken, Sure. And he's overwhelmed by what's taking place. But he falls down to worship the messenger. And it's just a picture of just how weak we can be. All right? It's just a picture of of how inclined we are to idolatry. 
And he's so overcome by this angel that he falls down in worship. And this angel reminds him that, hey, we're doing this together. You and I, we are servants together. You and and I are brothers in this calling that God has given us. Don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Worship God. That's that's the focus, and that's that's what John is reminded of there. That's what the whole book of Revelation is about. And and so this is easy for us to have. This is the problem with Babylon. It's the problem with living in Babylon. Is we long for those things we see around us if we're just looking with spiritual eyes and loving with a physical heart or a materialistic heart. But with eyes of faith, we see our king. Worship God alone. Idolatry is easy, church. We can idolize the beast. We can idolize what Babylon offers. We can long for it. Are we teaching our children? Are we teaching our children how to focus their affections on Jesus? What do they see us as mom and dad loving? What do they see us pursuing? And in our day of celebrity status and charisma, where those things seemingly outweigh character, you never worship the messenger. You never worship the preacher. You never worship any other human being. I know that seems redundant to say. But if John could be tempted to do that, so can we. Worship God. Worship Him alone. As we prepare for communion right now, this world, make no mistake, it is Babylon and it is our enemy. Now listen, don't start moving around, getting ready to go. As, as we prepare for this table, I, I called earlier in the week to talk to JT, and I just sent him a message. I said, you know, I think this Sunday is a perfect Sunday for communion because part of making ourselves ready, like the bride, is training our taste buds, training our appetites to hunger after the right things. And preparing to come to this table right now is one of the means of grace that God has given us to prepare our appetite for heaven. To get us ready for the wedding feast that's coming. Our songs, our prayers, our praises, our participation in the Lord's Supper, all these are just little appetizers. Just just a little taste of, of what is to come. And you are invited. All are invited. Come to Jesus. Leave behind Babylon. She will kill you. She will kill you. And you may sing and waltz your way to the grave. But in the end, that's what Babylon promises. She will be crushed and so will those who are with her. And those in Christ will stand and praise His name and celebrate with Him forever. And that's the, that's the invitation that we have today. I'll be down front to pray with you, receive you, talk with you about your relationship with Christ as we sing this song before we come to the communion table. Let's stand and worship together.